right, guys, welcome back to our teaching in the book of Exodus. Now, the last time we were here in chapter two, we basically saw the events that led up to the birth of Moses, beginning with his father and his mother conceiving a child in whom they believed that there was something not only just simply beautiful about the child, but there seems to be something implied in the text that there was something important about the child. But nevertheless, Moses was born in the very fear of the atmosphere of the command of the Egyptian Pharaoh to kill all all Hebrew sons. And that command was not simply given, as we know it at first, to the Hebrew midwives, but that command was extended to all Egyptians. Any Egyptian who saw a Hebrew child could actually kill that male child. And so it is in this that Moses himself was born and his mother hid him for as long as she could. As the scriptures tell us, it was three months. And then after that, she no longer could hide him. And she set him on a particular item, a a type of ark that she had crafted and sent it upon the Nile. Well, Moses himself was found by the daughter of Pharaoh. And that is the daughter of what is it? Thutmose the first who is Hesepshet. And this Hatshepsut took Moses in and received Moses as her own child, giving Moses his own mother. And that was an issue that we talked about in our last lesson, the idea of God's sovereign hand of control in all of the events. But nevertheless, she gave Moses' mother uh, wages to raise her own son, which let us know that Moses was not raised in ignorance of his people, but that he knew of his people. And he was raised with the benefit of the education of Egypt. At that time, we know the most educated, the most powerful nation in the world. And it was in 40 years. And that's the first period that we see not talked about in a lot of detail, but that's the idea. 40 years when Moses became of age that when he reached this particular time, he went to look out on his own brothers. He went to look on the affairs of the Hebrew slaves. And the idea was he went with the idea to deliver, to become a deliverer to them. And in that event, he saw an Egyptian mistreating a Hebrew slave. He killed him. And what happened? All of a sudden he comes the next day and he begins to try to arbitrate in some sense. Uh, between two Hebrews who were arguing and one of those Hebrews said, do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? But the point is that his intent to be an arbitrator to lead them out and hopefully that they would accept him as a ruler. It failed. It fell flatly. And Moses had to flee for his life, even though he himself was an Egyptian prince. But we talked about all of those details in both the introduction as well as last week's, I'm sorry, chapter two's lesson of of Exodus chapter two. But why Moses fled for his life, and that was the event because his mother had Sepshet, his his adopted mother, had died and Thutmose the third, who was the uh, son of, and we don't want to get into all of that, but I'm finding myself back into it again. But nevertheless, the Pharaoh at that time, Thutmose the third was seeking the life of Moses. And so Moses had to flee into the land of Midian. And there, as we begin to end chapter two, Moses delivered the daughters of Jethro, also called Ruel, 
but he delivered them from the hand of other shepherds who were uh, afflicting them at the time. And they invited them. Moses was invited to the house of Ruel, the priest of Midian. And there Moses was given a wife, Zephyrah. And he had his first son, whom he named Gershom, which was related to Moses's condition as a stranger in a land. And those are basically two Hebrew words, a stranger there. But anyway, and so there it kind of left off in chapter two, but in remembrance of bringing to call, bringing to mind of God's consideration of what was happening to the Hebrew people in Egypt and their um, oppression and misery there. And so it is with that idea of God's concern for them that we prepare for chapter three and God is preparing to, to give a remedy to that concern, which is to deliver them and to deliver them by the hand of Moses. And with that, we move into chapter three. Now, Moses was pastoring the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Oreb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight while the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Okay. So now let's talk about that. So now we are in a period of the second period of Moses life. Moses is now approximately 80 years of age. And it is now in this, at this time and in this occupation. And that's something that we need to see with spiritual effect at this time and occupation, because what does it say? Moses is shepherding the sheep of his father, Jethro, his father-in-law, Jethro. And so when I say the spiritual effect, what I literally mean is this, you have to remember that. And, and as we move through here in the call of Moses, and I may be, I'm always premature, aren't I? But just still bear with me, guys. But the spiritual effect is where we see the two things that we see in the life of Moses at this point. When I say the two uh, parts of his life right now, we know Moses, Moses lived to be 120 years of age. And we can see three divisions in his life. The first 40 years, he was raised in the courts of Egypt. But it is also in those first 40 years. In, and remember, when we say raised in the courts of Egypt, what, what, I'm, what you have to assume and what I'm implying is all of the grandeur of being raised as a prince of Egypt, the education that he received as a prince of Egypt. Remember how it even said in the book of, of Acts, uh, in, this re in the recourse of Stephen, how Moses was mighty in words and in deeds. And so there is a sense of grandeur in Moses. And so when Moses went first, as we saw in chapter two, to deliver the, the, his brothers, there is a sense of 
arrogance and, and pridefulness and, and Moses's own self-sufficiency. And so that's what we basically see in the first 40 years. And in that prideful arrogance of self-sufficiency that Moses himself was able to do, would, was able and would be able. And that's, I'm speaking from the point of Moses's assessment of himself, his assessment of his own abilities. He would be able because he has been raised and he has this pedigree. And, and then what do we see? Absolute failure. The rejection by his own brothers and the failure of this supposedly mission that Moses had set about for himself. You know, that's the first 40 years. Then the second 40 years, notice what we see. There is the sense of an humble shepherd. And for 40 years in shepherding uh, uh, the, the sheep of his father, Jethro, he's learning. And that's the beautiful thing. Notice Psalm 23, a psalm that we all love concerning the Lord himself. What do we see? The very first verse, the Lord is my shepherd. And so notice this is the occupation that God gives, gives to Moses through his father-in-law, of course, that of shepherding, that he learns these attributes. And notice there's a sense of humility in being a shepherd. And so now we see, so the point is, we can see the sovereign hand of God at work in Moses. We can see the states that are have taken place in Moses. That first self-sufficient and arrogant state in believing that he is able to deliver. And now we see in these next 40 years of his life, that humbling state, humility of learning to care for others in a different sense, the state of a shepherd, the sense of a shepherd. Okay. And with that, God is forming him. But at the same time, notice here when the Moses who was so eager to deliver, we will discover in chapter three, as well as chapter four, because the call of Moses, which is what we're talking about here in chapter three and three, but also extends to chapter four, the call of Moses, where Moses was so eager and believing that he was able to deliver the children of Israel. At first, he is now resistant to the call of God. He wants God to literally send somebody else. He doesn't even believe that he is able to deliver. And this is good in a sense to understand. So he learns two lessons here. He, the first lesson he learns against Self, self-sufficiency and pride. And the second lesson he will learn that it is by the enablement of God. And so this is that humility that God has developed in him. Okay. But I went way too far, but I wanted you guys to understand what was happening here. This in bringing out the Moses who is pastoring a flock. Now the difference in the man after 80 years, but anyway, so he is at he is in the in the wilderness at the uh, at Mount Sinai, which is also called here Mount, which is called here Mount Oreb, also the same as Mount Sinai at the rear of the mountain. OK, it is called the mountain of God. Now, whether or not it was known uh, at that time as the mountain of God, we don't know 
or whether or not when Moses is now reflecting to after all of the events that have taken place, you know, the burning bush and everything that will happen. Because remember, Moses is writing after these events have taken place. And now he calls it the mountain of God. So we don't know exactly why it is called the mountain of God, whether before or after. But nevertheless, that's the name that is attributed. But we do know primarily it is because of what God is doing here at this mountain. And what happens? The angel of the Lord appears to him. Now, this angel of the Lord, and we don't want to get into a lot of discussion about it because you can. But whenever that whenever and you see in the Old Testament here, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, it is always in reference to the second person of what we call the Trinity. That is God, the son. Remember, God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy Spirit. So this is always God, the son, or in other words, if I were to say it in a crass way, this is Jesus. Okay. This is Jesus, but not the Jesus of the new Testament because the Jesus of the new Testament comes as a man comes as the son of Mary. But here, as he is referred to as the angel of the Lord, the second person of the divine Godhead. So the angel of the Lord is Jesus as we know him in a pre-incarnate appearance. Pre-incarnate simply means before he has taken flesh, before he is born of Mary, okay? Remember, before he was born of Mary, he was God Almighty. John 1 and 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse number 14, and what did God do? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. OK, so the point is, this is our Lord Jesus in his divine appearance. And this is what we call a theophany. All right. And this is what is taking place in the burning bush a theophany. Theophany simply means a way that God is making himself manifest, a way that God is making him himself manifest. This is also referred to as the Shekinah, the Shekinah, or sometimes people call it the Shekinah glory of God. And this is simply when God is localizing his presence in some way. Okay, when I say localizing his presence, what I mean by all of this is this. We know that God, by, by the very nature of who he is, God is omnipresent. God is everywhere at the same time. However, God at certain times localizes, he make it, makes his presence known at a particular place at a particular time to be seen or to be uh, 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 realized in some way or another. And this is what we mean by the Shekinah glory of God. When God localizes his presence and makes it known. And usually when God makes that presence known in some sense, it is in a visible way. And this is what is taking place here. The angel of the Lord appearing to Moses, angel of the Lord, God, because later on this same angel of the Lord that appears to him in verse number four, notice the angel of the Lord is referred to as God. God called to him. So the angel of the Lord and God same figure, which is the pre-incarnate person 
of Jesus Christ. All right. But the point is, the glory of God has appeared to Moses in a burning bush, the Shekinah glory of God. God has made his presence known through the burning of a particular bush. Now, concerning the burning of bush uh, for shepherds in the in the Sinai Desert, this was nothing unusual that bushes would catch fire in the dry, hot desert that bushes would catch fire was nothing unusual. What became unusual and how God drew the attention of Moses was, although the bush burned, it was not burned up. It was not consumed. It didn't just burn and just come to an end of burning. It just kept burning and burning. And this caught the Moses, the attention of Moses. And so therefore Moses said, this is interesting. Why in the world is the bush? It's just burning and burning. It's just unusual. And so what did he do? God used this, his appearance in the bush in this manner to draw Moses' attention. And indeed it did just that. It caught Moses' attention. And so when Moses came near, God called to Moses and we see the calling of Moses' name twice, Moses, Moses. And we see this a number of times in the scripture, say, for instance, with Abraham, 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 Jacob, Jacob, I believe is in the dream of Jacob as well. And even I believe with Samuel, God calls the name and usually that's a calling to a divine purpose of some sort. So God is calling Moses here to a divine purpose. We know we know as we have the benefit of the scriptures that that divine calling and purpose of Moses is to the is to the deliverance of his people. Okay. But in preparing Moses to meet God, the first thing, and, and not only to the, uh, the serenity of his calling, but the one who calls Moses, that is God himself, that Moses should have some understanding and appreciation of the one who call, calls him. And that is in the sense of the word fear and reverence from which is a derivative of holiness. So this is the idea that God wants Moses to understand about himself is the one who is calling you is holy. And so what does he say to Moses? He tells Moses to remove the sandals as, as he draws near to the Shekinah glory, to the localized presence of God. He tells Moses to remove the sandals from his feet because the ground that Moses is now standing on is holy ground. Now, there is nothing of the ground itself that makes it holy. The ground by its own nature is just common dirt, but it is because that God is making his presence. Remember that glory of God localized. God is making his presence there. He is making that presence there. It is that presence of God that makes the ground holy and the ground is made holy because of God himself. So God wants Moses to understand that the one in whom you are standing before is a holy God. And so therefore God is commanding reverence from Moses by removing the sandals from his feet. That which will be in a sense, the act of a slave, the act of a slave before his master. But anyway, 
So that, that is such a beautiful thing that he understands the God who calls us. And we should always, even for ourselves, understand the God whom we serve as well. But anyway, so now verse number six, God begins to not so much as introduce himself, but reveal himself to Moses. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and try to bring them up. I'm sorry. And to bring them up from the land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, come now and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. All right. And so now is the former call of Moses and where we see why God has done what he has done. That is the appearance in the bush that burns and is not consumed. He is now calling Moses to deliver Israel from the hand of the Egyptians. So he begins and says in his self and God's self identification, he calls himself the God of Moses's father, the God of his ancestors, namely, or in particular, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses would clearly understand these men as his ancestors. And then when he does in the revealing of, and this is the name of God. We, the, and when I say the name of God, that is the way which God identifies himself. God's personal name is Yahweh. Now there's more to be said about this in chapter three to come, but his personal name is Yahweh. Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay. And so when God speaks to Moses, Moses hides his face because he was afraid to look at God. And this was not because Moses could not look upon God because God was manifesting himself in a way to be seen. Remember in the bush that did burn, but because as Moses began to, he understood that it was indeed God. It was always believed that to look upon God was death. And so therefore Moses would not look upon God. Remember, we kind of saw the same thing with Jacob when Jacob marveled that after understanding that he actually wrestled with God. Remember, he said, I wrestled with God and I did not die. And so he named the place the face of God, Peniel of God. Why? He said, because I actually saw him and I did not die. My life was preserved because it was believed to look upon God was a death sentence. And so therefore Moses hides his face from God. And so now God continues to call and he says, and he uses, he said, uh, 
I have seen the affliction of his people, Israel and Egypt. And now remember, I talked about last uh, uh, last lesson, Exodus chapter two, anthropomorphic language. That is God is speaking of himself as a man, one who a man looks at something and he makes an estimation or he makes a, a, a draws conclusion or has feelings about something. So God is speaking of himself as a man. But actually, we understand that God was always aware of what was going. He's aware of what's going on with everything, everyone in the world, in the universe at all times. There is nothing that God is unaware of, but he speaks in a way in a humanistic type way. And this is the language that he constantly gives as he talks to Moses and also in other places in the scripture. Okay. So what does he say? He said, I've seen the hardships of Israel and Egypt and all of the oppression because I remember the taskmasters to really oppress them that we talked about in chapter one. He's aware of their suffering. And again, in using this anthropomorphic language, I have come down. And when he talks about he has come down, he is simply saying he is making he has made the determination that now is the time to act. OK, and this is not because simply in the sense. Remember, this is anthropomorphic humanistic type language because, OK, he's seen it, blah, blah, blah. But God has already predetermined when he will do and what he will do. And without getting to all of that again, we, we know because remember when God said to Abraham once again, Genesis chapter 15, God told Abraham that his seed would go into a land, not their own, be oppressed. And after four generations, 400 years, he would bring them out. Now, God said that to Abraham hundreds of years ago. Okay. So in the language that he's speaking now, now I have come down. He's just letting Moses know that this is now that time for me to act. And that's all he's doing. Now I've come down to deliver them from the Egyptians. Okay. And to bring them into the land that he had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He calls that land, a land that is good and spacious flowing with milk and honey. That is a very productive land where their livestock can grow, where the agriculture will be good, a land that is prosperous, flowing with milk and honey. And this land he refers to as the land where the present tense, sometimes the, the, uh, the Old Testament text would simply say Canaanites in general, and then sometimes would say the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, and things of that nature, as is doing here or seven Canaanite nations, as he would speak of about in Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. But nevertheless, it is to the place of the Canaanites, okay? And I, I kind of almost want to make, uh, make some comments concerning that, but it might take you guys a little bit too far off. But since I am here and it's in my mind, let me do make some comments about it. Because we know that these Canaanite peoples that God will bring uh, uh, bring the Israelite people out of bondage and under uh, some portion, par partially with Moses, but predominantly with Joshua will begin to war against these Canaanite people. And there will be great war and destruction and death to these Canaanite peoples. But the point is, as God is bringing in, bringing uh, the Israelite people to war against these people, sometimes 
I've seen people uh, get the wrong oppression and they see violence from God and God wrongfully, in a sense, wrongfully uh, destroying these Canaanite peoples and things of that nature. And it's just telling Joshua to just kill them. And and somehow they see God as being awful and mean and things of that nature. But I just want to since I'm here again, talking about coming into the land where these people are already there, the Canaanites. I just want to bring to your remembrance, even when God spoke to Abraham, the Genesis 15 thing that I just told you about. Remember, God says when he will bring Israel back into the land again to possess the land. Remember, he said the reason I will give 400 years to do this because the sins of the Amorites are not yet full. So let me bring that first point in the sins of the Amorites. In other words, they were a sinful people and God is still giving them time, grace, grace, time. And, and he allows their sin to just go on and go on and on until it comes to a point of judgment. So God is never wrong. He is always righteous when he judges sin. So, when God brings the Israelite people back into the land and we see this great destruction of the Canaanite people, it is in judgment because of their sins. Their sins are full. That means they are absolutely wicked. That's what we learn in the book of Leviticus 18, chapter 20, and all of the wickedness of the Canaanite people. OK, and also, too, since I'm here. So bear with me. Let me bring you back all the way. Remember, this was prophetically spoken of by Noah. Remember when the, uh, the, the son of Noah came in and saw his nakedness, that is Ham, came and saw the nakedness of Noah and Noah cursed Ham. That is, he said, cursed be Canaan. That's a beautiful concept. Noah, notice it was Ham who did the sin, but Noah actually prophetically cursed Canaan. And who are the descendants of Ham? Who are the descendants of Canaan? These Canaanites here, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites. And what was the sin of Ham that brought about the curse? That, that is that prophetic word that brought about that, 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 that mal-speakment of God here. It was a sexual sin. He uncovered the nakedness and what will be the sexual perversion and sins, the, should I say, the, the sins of these Canaanites, their great sexual perversion. Again, Leviticus 18 and 20. And, and I don't want to get into all of that because that's even, even years before now, but after this time, but the point where God would talk about where they sleep with their own mothers, where they have sex with women in doing their menstrual cycles, where uh, it, it, men uh, uh, have sexual relationships with men and women have sexual relationship with women, the, the sins of the Canaanites. So allow me, thank you for giving me that time. When he brings them out into the land of the Canaanites, God has done nothing wrong. The judgment of the Canaanites is due unto them. Okay. Now I know I was way outside of the text, but I kind of wanted to let you guys see that part because so time, so many times I see people misjudge God and saying God is just cruel. No, he is not. God is always slow to anger and slow to wrath. 
but he is sure to bring judgment when that time has come. But anyway, so the point is he is calling Moses at this time. And so he says the cry of the sons of Israel come unto me. In other words, the time is now. And he is he is now going to do something about all of the suffering of the children of Israel in Egypt. And so he just simply says, and the tool that I will use now, Moses, is you. And I can imagine when he said that to Moses, Moses almost fell on the ground. <laughs> he was already bowed down low, but he probably wanted to collapse when he said, oh, my God, you said me. And then he says, I'll send you. And verse number 10 is interesting. I don't want to make too much out of it, but I do want to make some comments toward it. That you may bring the people, the sons of Israel out of Egypt. Now, uh, he says unto Moses, in other words, you are going to be my instrument of deliverance for the sons of Israel. So that's the point. That's the main point. I'm using you to bring them out. Okay. But now when we do look at another thing that we always want to remember, too, is this. And we'll see this also in chapter three and beyond. The mindset of God was never simply to bring them out. But as he said, to bring them out of Egypt, the house of slavery, and to bring them into the land of Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey. So the mindset of God was always in a two perspective mode to bring them out and bring them in. So that was always God's thing. Not to just simply bring them out into the wilderness. And some of you guys are aware of what happened. That generation died in the wilderness, but they died because of unbelief and their disobedience. That was not God's intent. His intention was to bring them out and bring them in. Also, that intention is for Moses as well to bring them out of the land of Egypt and to bring them in. But also we do know too, and I know I'm way ahead, but I'm trying to make you understand the text. Even though he did choose Moses to bring them out and the mindset was the Moses who brought them out was also to bring them in. We know that Moses also too, Numbers chapter 20, because of his own failure in unbelief, will not bring them into, I think that's Deuteronomy 32, into the land of Canaan. So Moses, although God's mind, bring them out and bring them in, he won't bring them in. And so it seems the reason why I'm bringing that out here is look in the text at verse number 10, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel out of Egypt. It seems to be, we already know God knows. He knows everything past, present, and future. He knows where Moses will fail. He knows where you and I will fail. Okay. But it seems to imply here in the text that God knows that Moses will fail him and therefore that Moses will only be able to succeed in the first part of God's mandate to bring them out. Moses will not bring them in. And the text seems to kind of imply that. But anyway, let's continue. But Moses said to God, his objections, who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt. And he said, certainly I will be with you. And this shall be the sign to you. That is that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Then Moses said to God, 
Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel. And I, you know what? Let's stop there because when we start getting in the next verses, it can really get deep and I don't want to go too much too far. So let's deal with it. Now we have the objections of Moses. And remember, as I said to you guys earlier, how Moses was so eager to deliver them when he was 40 years of age. Now at 80 years of age, he didn't want to go at all. At 40 years of age, he thought that through his own power, his own uh, 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 knowledge and cunning or whatever, he would be able to deliver them. And now he sees himself as basically a nobody. So he went from a somebody in his own mind to a nobody. Notice what he says to God. And this is the beginning of five of Moses's objections to God. Why he doesn't want to go to be used as a deliverer for the children of Israel. Who am I? Moses thinks to himself that he is a no one to go to Pharaoh and to do such a great task as to deliver the sons of Israel. And God assures him and noted. God says it is not about who you are. It is who I am. And so God says, I will be with you. So it is not you who will be delivering them. Me who will be living, be delivering them. Not about you. It's all about who I am and what I'm capable of doing. And so then he assures Moses, he says, and this will be a sign unto you that indeed I have called you in. And I like that. I like that. How do you know for certain I have called you? You will be at this mountain and you will worship me. You will bring the children of Israel to this very mountain where they will worship me. The proof that I have called you will be you will do exactly what I have sent you to do. The proof is you will have done what I have said. <laughs> but anyway, so I like that. But it, and so the proof, it will be that. And so then now let's get into verse number 13. Then Moses said to God, behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel. And I will say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, what is his name? And what shall, what, what shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial name to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob has appeared to me saying, I am indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. So I said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite to a land flowing with milk and honey. 
they will pay they will pay heed to you to what you say. And you with the elders of Israel will come to the king of Egypt and you will say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. So now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord, our God. Okay. Let me stop there. Cause that's a lot. So now Moses brings his second objection to God. And so he says, okay, fine. I'm going to go to the people of Israel and tell them God of your fathers has sent me to you. And the first thing they will ask me is, okay, well, what is this God's name? And so what shall I say to them? Now, I believe that has reference back to, as we will deal with it much later on in the 10 plagues of Egypt, this has reference back to the polytheism of Egypt. And okay. And by that simply, I mean, Egypt had many gods. And this was one of the reasons why we see in the plagues of Egypt, each separate plague, all 10 was a strike against the different gods of Egypt. So what we'll find out is in the 10 plagues of Egypt, in all of Egypt's gods and the polytheism of Egypt, what God himself was doing, destroying the gods of Egypt. And in the destruction of the gods of Egypt, God is simply saying, I alone am God. I myself, by myself, and there is no other God besides me. Okay. So that that's in the destruction of the gods of Egypt. So I think what is implied here is Moses is anticipating that the children of Israel has learned even probably from the God, from the people of the Egyptians in their idolatry, a God who a God has a name. And, and with that particular name, see, it's a, with that particular name of that God would speak of the realm of the power of that God. You know, like the, I think it was Anubis for the Egyptians who was the God of the dead, I believe, but uh, don't hold me to that one. But the point is, and so therefore, with the name of the God, we'll deal with the realm of the power of the God. And that's why we see the furthering of this text developing. And so what he says, because they're going to ask me, what is your name? And so God replies to Moses, I am who I am. Aye, asher, aye, as it is in the Hebrew or, uh, or grammatically, uh, particularly grammatically in the Hebrew, he says, I will be who I will be because that is a future tense verb, but it is translated in the present tense. I am who I am. Now let's talk about that because this is the, you know, from a theological philosophical perspective, you can talk about this forever and ever and quite naturally. So, because it is the name of God that speaks of the person of God. God himself is infinite. So you can have the depth of this discussion in the name of God is beyond and beyond and beyond. But of course we can't do that. So we have to make it concrete as best we can in our own limited mortal thinking. God speaks of himself. It comes from the root verb hayah. And, th and th that verb in Hebrew, hayah, means to be. With this verb, so I, I will be. 
And in that, we can see the root of God's personal name itself. Yahweh, the Tetragrammaton, yod Hey, wow Hey. So in the name, personal name of God, Yahweh, we can see the roots of Hayah, which means to be. And so God says what? I am that I am. So we can see the reference back to his own personal name. What is important about that, and you can even see why it is translated to be, to be. That is, and, and this is another thing too. So the one who is, the God who is, and that is the point. I am the God who is, or the self-existent one. And when we, okay, let me talk about that because I, don't, I want you guys to really get it. Because for, for years, I really didn't get it. And, and you didn't see a lot of explanation behind it. And people just throw out these terms, self-existent one, as if you can understand that all by yourself sometimes. Self-existent one simply means this. The one who exists of himself and the mean or the cause of his existence comes from nothing else, comes from no other source. Remember, God is the creator of all things. That means all things have has his cause from exist cause of existence from God. It is God who caused all things to exist. Okay? So by self-existent one, that means of himself he exists. Nothing caused God to be. He just simply is of himself by himself cause he has always existed. The self-existent one. I am that I am. A yea, a share, a yea. That's a beautiful concept, okay? So that's number one. And number two is two, the idea, the one who causes all things to be. That is also being inferred here. I am the one who causes all things to be. So that goes again. Remember, you're going, this God, Moses is saying to his people, they want to know your name. The things associated with this great God of deliverance. What is his realm of power? I'm the one who is able to do all things because I cause all things. That's my name. The one who is able to do all things because I bring all things to pass. That's why. And you tell them that one is the one who calls them. And it is that one, that God, who is the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And that's what we see in the great. I am the God of your father. OK. And so he continues on. And that's verses 15 and 16. And so God tells them he gets over. He, he replies to Moses's uh, a second and this is an objection to Moses and by objection, Moses does not want to go. <laughs> so he's just trying to come up with a bunch of reasons why God in the end, as he was saying, his final objection. And that's in chapter four, send somebody else. <laughs> but we're not there yet. And so he tells him this is his God's own self-identification. I am that I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of your fathers. And then he tells him to go verse number 16, to gather the elders of Israel together and when, and to tell them that the God of your fathers has appeared unto me for this time of deliverance 
to send me to deliver the children of Israel, that he has seen what is going on with you. Again, the anthropomorphic language that we've been talking about. He's seen what's going on with the sons of Israel, and he has determined that now is his time to act, to deliver them from the oppression of Egypt. Okay. And so he says unto them that they should come gather together with Moses to prepare to appear before the Pharaoh. And this Pharaoh here at this time is Amenhotep the second, because Thutmose the third, the Pharaoh of, dep- of oppression that wanted to kill Moses is now dead. And Amenhotep the second now is ruling. And this is the Pharaoh of the deliverance from Egypt the Pharaoh who will be de- who will be killed uh, 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 when the waters of the Sea of Reed, the Red Sea, covers him, and the Pharaoh on, upon whom his firstborn son will be killed in the tenth plague of Egypt. Okay, Amenhotep the second. But anyway, to go to the to that particular Pharaoh with the elders of Israel, and to say unto the Pharaoh, let the people of Israel, people sons of Israel. Take a three days journey into the wilderness to sacrifice to the Lord, their God, the God of the Hebrews. And God identifies himself in a distinct way against the gods of the Egyptians, the gods of the Hebrews. Okay, but concerning the uh, uh, the the request to be made to Pharaoh, the three days journey, it was always God's intent to deliver permanently. Uh, out of Egypt and not just simply a three days journey and, and, and sacrifice and then return back into Egypt. It was always God's mindset. But what's going what God is presenting to Moses here is this. He's giving him the simplest of requests. And by that, I mean this. If the Pharaoh of Egypt will not allow the Israelite people to simply go uh, uh, for three days and worship unto God. If they want, he won't allow the smallest of things. Of course, definitely he will not allow them to go at all. And so that's what God is trying to let Moses see. Not just a three days journey, but if the Pharaoh is unwilling to do a small thing, you know he's not going to be willing to let him go. So therefore, so notice what I'm trying to say. Therefore, what? God is going to have to act with a mighty hand of power. That is the 10 plagues of Egypt. Mighty hand of power to deliver because this Pharaoh is completely unwilling to let them go. All right. And we'll talk about that letting them go, which will be the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. We'll talk about that at a later time. But anyway, so now let's continue. Verse number 19. But I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go. I will grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be that when you go, You will not go empty handed, but every woman shall ask of her neighbor and the woman who lives in her house articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. And I will put them on your sons and your daughters. Thus, you will plunder the Egyptians. Okay. now as we bring this part to a close, so God simply says, even with that simple request to go and worship, 
for, uh, for the three days journey. He won't do that. So therefore God will be, I almost want to say in my own humanistic way forced. So it will grant God opportunity to display great power and to break the Egyptians in order that they will let the sons of Israel go. And so therefore God said, I'm going to show his miracles. And we know that these will all be the 10 plagues that will strike Egypt. And then after that, he will surely let the people go. And in the process of leaving the nation, the children of Israel will not go empty handed. And he said, and this also speaks back to Genesis chapter 15, what God said to Abraham, but that they will plunder the Egyptians and that the people will have favor amongst the Egyptians because God has so destroyed the Egyptians. They will be glad to do anything to let the children of Israel go. You can, in other words, get anything you want, just leave. And that would be basically be the mindset and atmosphere among the Egyptians towards the Israelite people. And therefore they will plunder. They will ask the Egyptians for this, for clothing and, and articles of silver and gold. And the Egyptian will simply say, take it. And they will give so much to the children of Israel. It was seen as a plunder of the Egyptians. And all of this seems to imply this will be in recompense to the 400 years of slavery to the Egyptians. This will be repayment for them. Okay. All right, guys, we are just finished the first part of the call of Moses and have dealt with the first two objections of Moses, but we are still, we still haven't finished it. It will not be until we get into chapter four that we complete that whole idea. Chapter four brings about the whole instance of the call of Moses and deal with all five objections of Moses, okay? So thanks for joining me with that one. Join me next time in chapter four, the Lord willing, as we continue with the call of Moses and his objections to God's calling. See you next time.